So one of my favorite TV shows to watch is a show called Forged in Fire. Uh, it's a show that I like to watch with my son quite a bit. And the whole premise of the show, like especially like, well, it's actually the kind of show that if you want to just turn off your brain and enjoy what's taking place, this is a great show uh, for you. And especially if you're into like knives and you know old time weapons and that kind of thing. Um, but it, it's the kind of show that causes me to give off that like Tim Allen type grunt, like oh, oh you know that kind of idea. Um, and so, it, like I said, it's called Forge and Fire. Each episode, four bladesmiths compete uh, for two things. They, they compete for a $10,000 check, and then they also compete uh, to be that week's uh, Forged and Fire champion. And the way it works is they, get, they got these different rounds that they do, and in every round, they eliminate uh, one of the bladesmiths. And so it's actually a really cool show. And, and one of my favorite parts of the show is when they're hammering on the steel to shape the weapon and you can see that there are impurities that are kind of falling off and and, and are being separated from uh, the, the steel and so that separating of the impurities from the steel they it's actually just super satisfying to watch it's one of those things in our passage that we're looking at today it's this idea of melting something down to separate out the impurities so that only that which is pure is left. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 49 to 53. Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 53. And if you don't know where the Gospel of Luke is in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked hard to put it there. Please don't be ashamed to use it. Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 53. Here's what it says. I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No. I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart three in favor of me, two against, or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time today. And, and, I, and I recognize, Lord, that as we read this passage, it seems grim and, uh, and, and difficult for us to understand what's going on here, Lord, as you are the Prince of Peace, but now you're telling us that uh, you're not coming to bring peace. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to have eyes that are open, ears that are open to what you have for us today, that our hearts and spirits are open uh, to understanding your truth today. In your name I pray, amen. So, it's an interesting language here, right? Um, as I said before, this is the language of separating out the impurities from the purities. And so I think it's important for us to understand that that peace with Jesus brings a divide with the world. And catch that? Peace with Jesus brings a divide with the world. And as we, as we walk through the passage, when we look at verse 49, what we recognize here is that Jesus is key regarding this fire that he's speaking of. He says, I've come to bring fire on earth and how I wish it was already kindled. Now, the fire that Jesus came to cast on the earth is probably understood as this purifying, refining fire, especially if you look at the total context of the passage, right? Uh, 
uh, when we read the rest of the passage, Jesus is talking about separating out the pure from the impure. Uh, as a matter of fact, the prophet Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, he spoke of the Lord as being a divider of sorts. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 to 5, he says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppose, sorry, who oppress widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And so the most common process of refining gold or silver involves heating the gold specifically to a high temperature and then blowing air through it. And when they blow the air through it, what happens is that these impurities begin to rise to the top and then you scrape them off the top. And the process, uh, it removes things like copper and silver from the gold. God separates, he divides good from evil. That's what he does. He divides good from evil, purifying the good and destroying the evil. And this fire is cast upon the earth and it divides the faithless from the faithful. In a larger context, I want you to notice that Jesus is discussing one of the reasons that he came into the world. And this is a difficult one for a lot of people because nowadays we like to picture Jesus as just this good time guy. He's just all love and, and there's no... Uh, harshness to him. There's no um, blunt and directness to him. He's just love and kind. He's kind of like that buddy Jesus idea. And, and that's just not accurate within the scriptures in terms of how we should be looking at Jesus. We, we reduce Jesus to this idea of friend of sinners and we interpret friend as in this chum and this buddy. But the idea of friend of sinners is the notion that he works on our behalf, and in that sense, he's a friend. But we've got to remember that he's king, that he's Lord, that he's creator, that he's God. And that's not a buddy. That's not a chum. And so this passage is part of a larger context where he's talking about one of the reasons that he came to the earth. And he says he didn't come, bring, come to bring peace to the whole earth. Instead, he is here to cause people to make choices and different people will make different choices. And based on the choices that they make, they will either be together or they will divide. Jesus came to set the hearts and the world on fire. It's passion to obey God that will cause conflict. And like all fires, it will either destroy or it will purify depending on what is being operated on. Here's what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 15, say it this way. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through 
the flames. Now, again, this is the idea of uh, picturing what fire is, is pictured at, actually, in the scripture. It's a purifier, and, it, and it's a testing ground for a lot of people. Jesus comes along, and he says, okay, so I'm going to set this thing on fire. We're going to know people's hearts. There are going to be those who are unfaithful, and they're going to be destroyed, and they're going to be burned up in the fire. You're going to be those who are minimally faithful, right? And they're going to make, enter heaven by just es barely escaping the, the flames of hell, they would say. Uh, and, and then, there, of course, there are those who are ultimately faithful, who will receive a reward. Jesus is key to the fire, and this fire is purifying. And so when he says that I wish that it was already kindled, uh, this is this idea of like, let's get this going already because he wants this rescue mission of his um, that causes people to make a decision to begin. It also says here, verse 50, that Jesus is, uh, he's key regarding suffering and death. Uh, in verse 50, it says, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Now, the baptism that Jesus is talking about here should not be confused with his water baptism by John the Baptist that we read about in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, the baptism that Jesus speaks about here in Luke chapter 12 is, is a baptism that hasn't yet occurred. And so that tells you already, okay, so that's not his water baptism. Uh, we know that like, there are some people who indicate that Jesus was immediately following his baptism. He had... This, we have this incredible scenario where we have God the Father saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We have the dove uh, in, in bodily form, like this Holy Spirit in the bodily form of a dove uh, coming down on Jesus. And then we had Jesus himself there. And this is the tr like one of these key passages that represents the Trinity. But it's also the indication that, the, of course, the Holy Spirit is there to, to inaugurate his, his ministry. In Luke chapter 12, this baptism that he's referring to hasn't yet occurred. The baptism is to be understood as his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 or 38 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In other words, Jesus is going to be immersed into death and he's, he's challenging them and saying, hey, listen, like I need to be doing something here that you, you can't do and that you wouldn't do. The result of this baptism is the kindling, or the kindling of the refiner's fire that is cast upon the earth. And Jesus says that he is greatly distressed until this suffering is accomplished. Uh, co Bible commentator Matthew Poole says this, he says, as a woman uh, big with child heartily wishes that the hour of her travail were to come and over, not for the pain's sake, which she must endure, but for her own ease sake and the joy that she would have of a child born into the world. Jesus' words expressed both the trouble and the distress he was in, which were like the distress of a person closely surrounded by an enemy. Uh, Matthew Poole uh, recognizes that this is kind of that anticipation of something difficult, but then ultimately good in the end, like a woman going through childbearing. The pain is not something that they're looking forward to. That, that difficulty is not something that they're looking forward to. But that ultimate reward of the child in their arms is something that they look forward to. Something actually that all parents look forward to. 
And in the same way, Jesus is not desiring this suffering and this pain and this death, but he's desiring the fruit that will come from it. And so this distress that he refers to is like a person who is surrounded by an enemy. Jesus' desire is that the fire was already started, but it cannot be lit until his crucifixion. To set the world aflame, Jesus has to be immersed in the suffering, and he doesn't enjoy the thoughts of what's coming. John chapter 12, verse 27 says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, or sir, what should I say? And he asks this question. Father, save me from this hour. And he says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And so it signifies his restless desire to have it accomplished. It's not that he desired Judas to betray him. It's not that he desired the, uh, the Jewish community to reject him. He did not desire the Romans to crucify him. All of these things needed to happen so that the justice of God would be able to come about and to be fulfilled. It had to be satisfied that the law may be fulfilled and that salvation of the people be obtained. And see, and that's the fruit. He needed to go through this humiliation, this death, this, and the resurrection for the fruit of salvation to be able to be attained for people. And then lastly, I would say that Jesus is key regarding division. Verse 51 to 53, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two or two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And we sit here and we look at this and we're like, well, how are we to make sense of Luke chapter 12, verse 51? Have we found a contradiction in the Bible, right? Because if, if we have, like in the declaration of Jesus' birth, is a peace on earth and goodwill towards men with whom God's favor rests, that he's the prince of peace, like there's this language here where Jesus is like, no, I didn't come to bring peace, but we have these proclamations earlier, so what do we do with this? How can we respond to this unsettling word of Jesus? Well, thankfully, Jesus does bring peace. When Jesus said he did not come to bring peace on earth, verse 51, he meant peace with the world. In other words, Jesus did not come to bring peace with the world, but he came to bring peace to the world. And that's different. Peace with the world versus peace to the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is brought about by God. And it's, it, so he brings peace to the world so that, pe- that people can have peace with God. But he didn't come to bring peace with the world, right? Because again, this is the separating of things. This is the dividing of the pure and the impure. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us as, and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This is the peace that's being referenced. This is also the suffering that Jesus referenced. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus brings us peace. And we are called children of God, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The peace Jesus brings is part of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 15. And it is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. 
So peace comes from God. And then context is everything, as they say. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is not making some broad statement about his ultimate purpose. Rather, he's pointing out to a very real result of his kingdom proclamation. As Jesus announced the kingdom of God, calling for primary allegiance, the frequently split families, some members believed, other members didn't. In fact, it's quite possible that Jesus' own family was divided because of his ministry. As a matter of fact, what we do know is that his brothers, very specifically, uh, thought he was losing his mind. And so they didn't believe. And that's an interesting point later. Like, you know, James, for example, brother of Jesus, didn't think that Jesus was Lord. He thought he was losing his mind. And then you have Jesus' death, no mention of James being at the death, and, resur- and certainly not at the resurrection, right? But in Corinthians, we read that Jesus appears to James. And the next mention of James, the brother of Jesus, is that he's the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And so he went from not believing to encountering Jesus as a resurrection, or he went from not believing to being the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And the only thing that happened in between there that we can discern from the scriptures is that Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. Talk about an interesting thing. Like what would cause you to believe that your brother was your Lord? That's dramatic. But in moving forward here, he's pointing to this very real result of his kingdom. He announces the kingdom of God, calling for primary allegiance, which frequently split families, as I mentioned. In fact, it's quite possible that his own family was split in his own lifetime. So even though the kingdom of God ultimately establishes peace on earth, like God brings peace to earth, the advance of the kingdom brings division because there are people who are not going to want to be people of allegiance to the kingdom. And so this unhappy truth does not, of course, imply that followers of Jesus are to seek conflict or to split with families when people don't agree with you. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that we're to be peacemakers and that we're to live in peace as far as we are able with people. And the Apostle Paul adds in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. But making peace is not the same as making nice. Sometimes our efforts will bring genuine peace to a situation or a relationship will, in fact, lead to conflict. And yet we seek to serve God faithfully in such circumstances. So knowing that, in the end, His genuine lasting peace will pervade all of creation. Look, here's the reality. When you accept Jesus, you are immediately divided from the world. You are a set-apart person. And as someone who is set apart, who is now considered righteous through the blood of Jesus, right? His, his uh, righteousness is imputed on us, meaning that it is granted to us. And so the Lord, like God, looks at us through the lens of His Son. We're now the righteous, and anyone who is not with the Lord is the unrighteous. And so there is this natural division that takes place. In other words, peace with Jesus results in a divide with the world. Peace with Jesus results in a divide with the world. And the division that Jesus speaks of here has several interesting aspects. Like one of them would be um, this division that happens within the family, right? So he talks about like there's father against son, mother against daughter, uh, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, all that kind of stuff. And so history is born testimony to the fact that the gospel divides men and women, husband and wives, parents and children, Uh, For faith in Christ requires ultimate allegiance to Him. And 
And that's the reality. Like, I got to choose Jesus. And I love my family, but my allegiance first has to be to Jesus. Secondly, there's two groups that are unified, actually, uh, to each other. Uh, or to themselves, really, is what I really mean. Like, there are those who have come to faith in Christ, and they join the true family of God. And there's a unity that comes from that, right? So, so the family of God is a unified group, and they unify in the allegiance towards Jesus. We're as ambassadors, we are this priesthood, we are to deliver the gospel message, we are to live in unity with one another. Uh, as a matter of fact, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus actually in fact says that, that our unity will be evidence that he was sent from the Father. So that's important, right? So there's a unity that happens with those who follow Jesus. But secondly, while those who have rejected Christ will also find their allies, a new basis of unity in opposition to Jesus. And so you have those who are for Jesus and then you have those who oppose Jesus. For example, uh, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were opposed to one another. Uh, the Pharisees were considered people of the book. They were big on the spiritual uh, guidance of Israel. They were, they were big on following all the, all the laws and the festivals and the customs. The Sadducees were less spiritual. They're more of a political entity. And they didn't believe in an afterlife. They, they, they just really felt that a lot of these different things were superstitious. And so they were at odds with each other. And yet they came together in opposition to Jesus. They found unity in opposition to Jesus. They can join in rejecting Jesus and opposing him and ultimately orchestrating his death. These are the, kind of the two camps when we talk about division. There are those who are with Jesus and those who are not. And that's it. Jesus himself, in fact, even says that if you're not, like, if you're not with me, you're against me. Right? So Paul points out that faith in Jesus will produce persecution. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and by the way, this is not something that that we look forward to, it's not something we get excited about, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So you catch that? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In, in other words, what it means is, is that your allegiance to Jesus will result in those who oppose Jesus opposing you. That's what's going to happen. And so we see that in our world. We see that through media. We see that in some forms of uh, political thought. We see that in, in some of the scientific world. We see it kind of all over the place that if you were a follower of Jesus, if your allegiance is to Jesus, that there is opposition to you because of that. There will be an enormous joy in heaven, but there will also be pain and persecution for Christians here on earth. There is no way that we can avoid pain and suffering. The one who follows Christ will at some point suffer now in varying degrees and will renounce a certain, um, certain of life's present pleasures, right? They will experience the limitless joys of heaven later. In other words, I'm not going to pursue my sin nature. I'm not going to pursue the things that the world today tells me I need to pursue in order to have this happy life or self-actualized life, but rather I'm going to pursue the things of Jesus and I'm going to find joy in those things. But it means that I'm going to give up some of the guilty pleasures now because I'm pursuing the heavenly pleasures for later. Following our Lord Jesus Christ will assuredly divide many families and reconciliation 
in this instance, well, it could be impossible unless these people come to faith in Jesus. People are responsible for their decisions concerning Jesus, and it's best that people seek to be reconciled to Christ before that final day of judgment comes when it'll just be too late. So may none of us be part of that second group, the people that are opposed to Jesus. Jesus in his first coming has already endured the fire of God's wrath. He's already died for our sins. Trust him and you'll never need to fear his second coming. Be reconciled to God through Christ and do it before you face him as your judge, before you face the fire of his wrath. And I'll close with this one passage. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we have these passages that we can study, that we can understand things a little bit better. And I pray, Lord, that we would be more diligent in our allegiance to you. And Lord, for those who are not aligned to you, I pray, Jesus, that you will show yourself, that you would make yourself real to people, that you would lift the blindness from people's eyes so that they can see you clearly and come to faith in you. In your holy and precious name I pray, Lord. Amen.